0: As I mentioned, the topic for this evening is the topic of spiritual adoption. It's one of the components of salvation, and as we're going to see in a few moments, it's one of those least studied components of salvation, even though the concept of adoption, as we're going to see, is really not that complex. But as we get started, the key text that I want to read for you this evening as we begin to To focus our minds on this topic is found in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 to 6, where Paul breaks out in this very extended uh, eulogy, this statement of praise to God for salvation. And in verses 5 and 6, as part of that very long sentence that goes to verse 13, he says this, in love... He, that is, God the Father, predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Now, before we get into the the definition of, of adoption, spiritual adoption, I want to give a few moments to a review, particularly as it relates to a a topic that always gets raised whenever we talk about the components of salvation and their relationship to each other. And that question revolves around the issue of, of what theologians call the ordo salutis. It's a Latin phrase, we, we talked about it at the very beginning of our series back in September. Uh, the Ordo Salutis is that formal term, it's Latin, that refers to the order of salvation. And so the question that often arises when we talk about these aspects of salvation is, how do these, these aspects, how do these acts of God in our lives, how do they relate to each other in terms of, of order, and that whole discussion is called the, 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 the debate or the discussion over the ordo salutis. Let me read a definition given by Louis Burkhoff in his systematic theology. He defines the ordo salutis this way. Quote, "...the process by which the work of salvation wrought in Christ is subjectively realized in the hearts and lives of sinners." It aims at describing in their logical order and also in their interrelations the various movements of the Holy Spirit in the application of the work of redemption. End quote. So the order, or, ordo salutis, specifically has to do with that third category of, of redemption that we've been talking about. When we talk about redemption, those three basic categories, we talk about redemption arranged before time, Redemption accomplished in Jesus Christ on the cross and redemption applied in its, in its relative time to where you are at in Christ. Now, the ordo salutis specifically has to do with that third dimension. How the that which is accomplished by God through Christ on the cross is subjectively applied in your life. So when does regeneration Happen And then how does that regeneration fit with repentance and faith and justification and adoption? Louis Burkhoff continues in his discussion of the Ordo Salutis and he says this, quote, When we speak of an Ordo Salutis, we do not forget that the work of applying the grace of God to the individual sinner is a unitary process. But we simply stress the fact that various movements can be distinguished in the process. So in other words, he's saying, salvation, if if one part is there of salvation, it's all going to be there. It's hard to pull it all apart because these pieces all belong together. Nonetheless, he says in this quote that you can distinguish them in the process. He continues, that the work of the application of redemption proceeds in a definite and reasonable order, and that God does not impart the fullness of his salvation to the sinner in a single act. He continues, The question may be raised whether the Bible ever indicates a definitive ordo salutis. The answer to that question is that, while it does not explicitly furnish us with a complete order of salvation, it offers us a sufficient basis for such an order. End quote. In other words, what he's saying is that there is an element of mystery to this, and the Bible doesn't give us a chapter where there is a very specific definition and list of these components of salvation, one after the other in an exhaustive manner. And one of the key ones that we can turn to is Romans 8, 28, 29, 30, uh, specifically 8, 29, 30, that has that chain of salvation there, uh, but it doesn't contain all of the elements. It doesn't contain all of the components. So what we're left to do is systematize from the rest of Scripture and come up with a a general ordo salutis. We have to be very careful not to overstate our confidence in areas where Scripture might be silent, nonetheless, as Burkoff states, there is enough in Scripture, enough said about these different components of salvation in relationship to one another that we can come up with an ordo salutis. Now, the problem, however, comes in two ways. First of all, there's a general problem related to the debate between Calvinism and Arminianism, and that has to do with, with who initiates what and, and who is responsible for what. And in an Arminian Ordo you do have components of salvation that deal more with man's response that come first. And then that brings about God's response. And so an Arminian Ordo will start with repentance and faith. And then God will respond with Regeneration. Something like that. We're not going to talk too much about that in our series. We're, we're emphasizing all along that salvation is all of God. He is the author and perfecter of salvation. And so we're firmly focused upon that. But there is another distinction that does need to be made that, that sometimes causes, uh, causes confusion. And it's the distinction that must be made between chronology and causation the chronology involved in the Ordo Salutis and causation. Let me give you an illustration here on the slides. When we think about the application of salvation to the sinner, we can look at it in, in terms of time, and we really see just one event. We call it conversion. And at that event, you have these These different components all taking place simultaneously. Regeneration, repentance, faith, justification, adoption. When we look at chronology, it's there instantaneously. A person cannot be regenerate and then live for five, six months and then come to faith. A person cannot believe, cannot have faith and only experience justification two years later. No, these things all happen instantaneously, according to chronology. And according to chronology, you can't pull this all apart. Where there is regeneration, there is faith. Where there's faith, there's repentance. Where there's repentance, there's justification. Where there's justification, there is adoption. These things are happening happening simultaneously. That's chronology. But there is a different way to look at this. And that is looking at it from the standpoint of causation. 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 How does it look this way? Again, in terms of time, it's all happening instantaneously. But in terms of causation, the scriptures do indicate that that certain components are the cause of other components. And so, uh, as we've been looking at so far, to summarize, not every component that we've looked at so far, but generally speaking, we can look at it this way regeneration, that making the dead sinner alive, gives way to repentance and faith. And faith becomes the means, and remember faith is a gift from God, but faith becomes the means through which justification is declared. And then when we look at justification, it appears that those who have been justified are then adopted. That adoption follows upon justification. Now again, we're not distinguishing these things according to time, but we're looking at them according to causation and how these things have a logical order. Each of these distinct components, which cannot be simply made synonymous with each other, but each of these has their own spot, has their own place in the overall work of salvation And there is a logical order to them in terms of causation. Now, with that said, I want to turn to the doctrine of adoption. Where does this fit into it? And how do we understand the doctrine of adoption? The doctrine of adoption, interestingly enough, is one of the the lesser studied components of salvation. In fact, we could say that that, that the doctrine suffers from two incorrect responses on the part of some, it's just neglected. There's this neglect of this, as we will see tonight, this glorious aspect to adoption. It's, It's bewildering, as I think you'll agree with by the end of tonight. It's bewildering why we would neglect this, but it is generally neglected. It doesn't contain the same kind of fanfare as the doctrine of faith or the doctrine of justification. Adoption just doesn't attract that kind of attention. As Martin Lloyd-Jones said, for some inexplicable reason, it is a doctrine which we very rarely hear. How often have you heard sermons on adoption? Thankfully, here at Grace Church, we've heard them recently even. But in many other churches, you, you don't hear sermons on adoption. A second incorrect response is that some some theologians, even some notable theologians, have treated adoption as synonymous with other components of salvation. So some will treat adoption really just as a, an aspect of justification. We'll, we'll really put them in the same category adoption and justification as being the same thing, just different words to describe the same act. Some theologians do that, some equate it with regeneration. But when we examine the Scriptures, you don't find that kind of synonymous relationship. They are related, but they are distinct components. And we want to study that tonight. And as we're going to see tonight, this concept of adoption must occupy a very significant place in our understanding of the Christian life and our understanding of our own identity in Christ. This is vitally important. J. A. Packer, who's got a very good chapter on this in his book, Knowing God, says this, quote, What is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer, I know, is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. End quote. Now, likely, if I would have asked you the question as we began this evening, how would you define a Christian? I would not hesitate to say that probably the concept of a relationship relationship to God as Father and an identity of you as Son probably wouldn't have been among the most popular or the most recited answers in this room. We don't think of it in that way, and yet we should. Another writer said it this way, Robert Webb. He said this, quote, There is a sense in which it, that is adoption, is to be the crown and glory Of the entire redemptive process. The admission of sinful men through the grace of adoption into the family of God with all the rights and privileges of it in his house is, in a lofty sense, the culmination and climax of the blessings of redemption. All right, now let's dig into this then and define it so that we can. properly appreciated for being what it is, what Robert Webb said, really the climax of redemption. Let's look at our key terms and definitions. We're going to look at two of them tonight. Uh, one is a, a term in particular, and the other is a descript, description. The term is the term adoption, and the description that we'll look at is the concept of the fatherhood of God. These are interrelated ideas, and we have to define them carefully. Adoption and the fatherhood of God. Let's look at the term adoption first. What does this term mean? The word adoption occurs five times in the New Testament, all of them in Paul's writings. They're found in Romans 8, verse 15, Romans 8, verse 23, Romans 9, verse 4, Galatians 4, verse 5, and Ephesians 1, verse 5. We read Ephesians 1, verse 5. Already. It comes from a Greek word that is a compound term that, that comes from two Greek, two other Greek words, the word "huios," which means sun, and the term thesis, which means placement. And so or position. And, and so when you put these two terms together, sun and position, or sun and placement. It gives the idea of the concept of the position of a son. The position of a son. And of course, it's not difficult for us to understand the, the broader picture here. It's, it is when someone who is not a natural descendant of a father is placed in that status of being a son. That's what adoption is. It's the placement of an alien child, one who is not part of the family, one who's not the offspring of the parents, particularly the father. That individual is placed as a son. It's not their natural identity. It is their new legal identity. Now, in biblical times, adoption was practiced differently in different cultures. The Jews had their way of practicing adoption. The Greeks had their own way. And the Romans had a slightly different way of practicing adoption. Now, that raises the question then that when Paul uses the term adoption, to what is he referring? To the Jewish understanding? To the Greek understanding? To the Roman understanding? That's important. Because Paul, in these five instances, he uses the term adoption in very theologically profound contexts. He, he's communicating to us some of the amazing glories of salvation. And he uses this Greek term for adoption. And, and he, he uses it to communicate an idea, an analogy. And so it is important for us to consider. Okay, is it the Jewish practice? Is it the Greek Practice or is it the Roman practice? Well, in light of the fact that Paul was a Roman citizen, he was acquainted with Roman law, and in light of the fact that when he writes these texts to the Roman church, to the Corinthian church, to the Ephesian church, he's dealing with residents, Gentile residents of the Roman Empire. It's most likely that Paul is drawing upon the Roman practice of adoption as an analogy to describe what God has done for us in Christ. So let me read some history here on the Roman practice of adoption. And this comes from Harold Honer's commentary on the book of Ephesians. He writes this, quote, The father had absolute power, patria patestas, over the members of his family, So that he could even take the life of a member of his family. And that act would not be considered murder. That was the Roman understanding of the father in a family. He continues. With regard to property, the father had the full legal ownership of everything the family had and could dispose of it as he willed. Under Roman law... The procedure of adoption had two steps. In the first step, the son had to be released from the control of his natural father. This was done by a procedure whereby the father sold him as a slave three times to the adopter. The adopter would release him two times and he would automatically again come under his father's control. With the third sale, the adoptee was then freed from his natural father once and for all. That was the first step. So, three times you're sold. Sold once by your natural father to the adopter. You go right back to the natural father. You do it again. You're sold by your natural father to the adopter. He buys you, but you go right back to your natural father. But then the third time, when the adopter buys you from your natural father, you're released legally and forever from any responsibilities to your natural father. That's how the Romans practiced it. But then there was a second step. Harold Honor continues, Regarding the second step, since the natural father no longer had any authority over him, the adopter became the new father with absolute control over him, and he retained his control until the adoptee died or the adopter freed him. The son was not responsible to his natural father, but only to his newly acquired father. The purpose of adoption was so that the adoptee could take the position of a natural son in order to continue the family line and maintain property ownership. The son became the patria pastestas in the next generation, end quote. So this kind of adoption was practiced in Roman culture, particularly by those Families, those fathers who had no male offspring, for whatever reason, did not have a, a male child, a son. But you, you know how it is. When you think of your possessions, all that you've worked for, you want it to stay in the family name. And so that in the Roman times would go through the son, and the son would carry on the name. And would preserve and steward and protect the possessions of that family. That's how adoption was practiced in in Roman times. And that is the analogy that Paul brings in to describe what God has done for us. Now, in, in, in Roman times, in that practice of adoption... It was always the benefit of the adoptee to join that new family. It was never something of a step down. It was always a step up. A lot of these adopted sons were slaves who were brought into families of standing through adoption. It was always of grace, not of merit, not of some kind of necessity where the necessity was placed on the father to adopt a particular son. No, it was an act of grace and mercy. Now, taking that into the spiritual realm then, defining adoption theologically, we can define it this way. This is the definition given by John Murray. Adoption, as the term clearly implies, is an act of transfer from an alien family Into the family of God himself. End quote. That's the key idea. It is a transfer. As we're going to see in just a few moments. It's a judicial legal transfer. Taking you from a different family. And putting you into the family of God. And giving to you as a new member of the family. All the rights and privileges and inheritance. That comes with that family. MacArthur and Mayhew define it this way. In adoption, God legally places regenerated and justified sinners into his family so that they become sons and daughters of God and thus enjoy all the rights and privileges of one who is a member of God's eternal family. So central to the Christian life indeed is this identity of being a son or a a daughter of, of God. That's what defines us, not from an experiential position, first and foremost. It defines us according to God's legal declaration. You are my son. Now, we're going to define that a little bit further, but before we go any further, I want to talk for just a moment about the concept of the fatherhood of God because this concept has been misunderstood and twisted even by unorthodox theologians. And by doing that, it really takes away from the glory and the grandeur of spiritual adoption. Spiritual adoption is not cannot be fully appreciated unless we have a, an accurate understanding of what it means when we say that God is Father. And when we talk about God's fatherhood, it's important to recognize Three ways in which the fatherhood of God is to be understood. Three ways in which the fatherhood of God is to be understood. First, we can look at the fatherhood of God in this way. That he is father according to essence. He is father according to essence. And in this sense, this is only an inter-Trinitarian title. In the sense that it only relates to the relations of the Godhead. The first person of the Trinity is known according to his identity eternally as Father. That's a, a unique designation. And it is how he has revealed himself. The first person of the Trinity, the first person of the Godhead, has revealed himself to us as Father. And that, of course, is in distinction from the Son, who according to John 3.16 is the only begotten Of the Father eternally existing as Son. And then the third member of the Trinity is known as the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So, in some senses, when we use the term Father to describe God, we are speaking specifically of the first person of the triune Godhead. First person, He is Father, and in that sense, He is distinct from the Son. And distinct from the Spirit. That's the fatherhood of God according to essence. But there's also a sense in which there's a fatherhood of God according to creation. In this sense, God is called Father because of his role as creator and the source of of life to all living things. Paul quotes a a Greek poet there on, on Mars Hill when he addresses the Areopagus. And he quotes this Greek poet, and he says this, "...for in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children." And, end quote. and in, the writer, in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, verse 9, that he's the father of spirits, referring to him being the creator and sustainer of all living things. But this fatherhood, it is important to note, is not redemptive in nature. It only speaks to his ultimate authority and ownership. He is the father of spirits in that he is their origin, their sustainer, their authority, their Lord. It is not a redemptive title and it's important to remember that. It is a creative title. It is a title of ownership. And then there is this third aspect of the fatherhood of God. And this is a very exclusive one. In this sense, God is father by virtue of his role as redeemer of his elect. And in this sense, God is not father to all of mankind. It's very important to understand that in the redemptive sense, in this third category, God is not father to all of mankind without distinction. He is father to only some. Let me read some texts that make this clear. 1 John 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. And then notice the next sentence For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. There's a very black and white distinction. There are two categories here. The children of God and the world. There are two categories. And they're not the same. The children of God are those upon whom God has bestowed a special love. His redemption. And then there's the world that does not know Him. And the world is not His children. In this redemptive sense. Look at it this way. That prior to conversion... How are we described? In our unregenerate state, we are described as sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2, 2 and 5 or 6. We are called children of wrath in Ephesians 2 verse 3. Our father was the devil. Jesus said that in John 8 verse 44. Our father was the devil. But notice John 1 verse 12 to 13. Notice again the distinction that is made. John one twelve to 13, but as many as received him to them, not to all, but to those who received Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The only children of God in the true sense are those who have been born from above. The only people who have the right to call God Father in the true redemptive sense are those who have been redeemed. And we often don't understand this. Like I said, that the concept of adoption is something that is often missed among us. But when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray our Father, we, we go over that so fast. And we must not, we must stop there and realize that that designation is a special designation that can be spoken of only by those who are truly children of God, who have been given the right to be children of God. And so when we even utter those words, our Father, that is a very precious designation that this world cannot enjoy. And it is ours by virtue, not of ourselves, not of our own doing, not of our own achievements. It is ours by virtue of the grace of God. Now, liberal Protestants and those who believe that all religions lead to God, they'll emphasize that the universal fatherhood of God, that all these different paths and religions all lead up towards God, and God is father of all. Well, that, of course, is a lie. And again, it demeans The whole concept of spiritual adoption. That God adopts sinners through and only through Jesus Christ. Which means that if you are not in Christ. If you have not believed truly in Christ. Your your status is not a child of God. Your identity is not a son of God. And God is not your father In that redemptive sense. He is your father in terms of his ultimate authority. And lordship over you. Oh yes. But in terms of that redemptive relationship. That is not yours. If you are not in Christ. It is not your right. You must never claim it. Unless you. Trust in Christ. Now that said. Let's talk more specifically about the essential characteristics. Of this doctrine of adoption. Number one. Adoption is rooted in God's sovereign grace. Adoption is rooted in God's sovereign grace. The concept of adoption itself emphasizes the free choice of the parents in adoption. It is a vivid illustration of grace. And perhaps even in this room, there are some who have adopted children. And you know that you didn't need to do that. That was your choice. And we applaud you for that. In the spiritual sense, God did not need us, but his adoption of us as sons is a reflection of his sovereign grace. Paul says this in Ephesians 1 verse 5, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. J. Packers says it this way, quote, God adopts us out of free love, not because of our character and, and, and our records show us worthy to, be, to, to bear his name. But despite the fact, they show the very opposite. Adoption, by its very nature, is an act of free kindness to the person adopted. If you become a father by adopting a son or daughter, you do so because you choose to, not because you are bound to. It is an act of sovereign grace. Number two, adoption is judicial in nature, not transformative. Yes, adoption does lead to transformation of the adopted sinner. If, you are, if you've been adopted and you are a son of God... That will have an impact on you and that will transform you. But adoption itself is a judicial act done for the sinner. It is a declaration made in the courtroom of heaven with respect to you. Therefore, God in adoption bestows a status, not a nature. A status, not a nature. And in this sense, it's like justification where God declares you to be Not just innocent, but righteous. It's his declaration, even though you are simultaneously still one who commits sin. Adoption is the same way. Adoption is a declaration. God says, I declare you now to be my son. We see this in John 1 verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And that concept of right... Refers to legal authority, power. It is a forensic kind of idea. In Galatians 4, verse 4 to 5, we read this that when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Again, it is a judicial act. It has been accomplished, declared by God, and we simply receive it by faith. Number three, adoption is inaugurated through faith in Christ. The status of son or daughter of God is is not a universal right, as I've already mentioned. It is an exclusive status that only applies to those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. It isn't isn't a right that any person, any adherent to any religion has. John 1 verse 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Galatians 3 verse 26 says this, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Move to number four. Adoption bestows the Holy Spirit. There is a unique connection between the doctrine of adoption and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul, in particular, connects these ideas and shows that one brings about the other. Adoption bestows the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In particular, he now takes up residence in us as a testimony to our status. As he begins his work within us, one of those ministries that he does is to testify that we are an adoptee. It's that sign, that mark that shows we have been adopted. And so Paul says this in Galatians 4, verse 6: Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Paul says the same thing in Romans 8:15. To 16. He says, You have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, this testimony of the Holy Spirit is not renewed revelation. You're not going to hear it coming from your closet, you're not going to hear a voice, it's not going to be audible. But it is a ministry of the Holy Spirit as as He confirms in us what we would say is a knowledge that God, of what God has done for us as revealed in Scripture. So one theologian says it this way this testimony is reiterative rather than innovative. It's not that the Holy Spirit comes to you giving you brand new revelation over and over again about your status. No, that ministry of the Holy Spirit as he testifies within you and to you that you're a son of God is reiterative. He keeps drawing you back to what God has done in Christ. He keeps drawing you back to the cross and saying, this is true. This is true. He did it for you. This gospel message is for you. He died for you. He purchased redemption for you. And this is how he did it. And so it's reiterative. The ministry of the Spirit is to take us back over all that testimony in Scripture to bring it to our minds and say, yes, this is true, amen. Number five, adoption guarantees an imperishable inheritance. Adoption guarantees an imperishable inheritance. Central to the idea of adoption as, as we all know, is the transmission of an inheritance. It was the same in Roman times, even as it is today. If you adopt a child, that child now, if, if you don't spec, uh, stipulate in your in your will, hes gonna, the state's going to split it all up and treat your adopted son in the same way he treat, treats your natural son. It's the idea of the transmission of inheritance. And this concept of inheritance is... Is key to the Christian life. The biblical writers speak of it often. And attach to it the whole concept of hope. We hope for what? We hope for this inheritance. We we have this expectation. This promise of an inheritance. And we do that. We have this hope. We have this expectation. Because we have been adopted. This is what adoption brings. And so what is the inheritance? Inheritance. Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So our inheritance is there where Christ is. Our inheritance is is Christ. Galatians 4 verse 7 says, You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Romans 8 16 to 17 says that, The Spirit testifies within us that we're children of God. And if children heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Philippians 3 verse 21 says, Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. And so we can say this, that really when we think about inheritance Our inheritance is really summed up with with a few key ideas. It's it's focused on Christ. It's connected to the idea of glorification. And being able to enjoy not just forgiveness. But actual glory. In its fullest and perfect form that we could ever experience. And, And it is especially wrapped up. Our inheritance is wrapped up with our glorified bodies with the resurrection. Note that it, isn't an, it is an inheritance which is guaranteed. And once you have been, been designated and declared a son of God, that, that inheritance can never be taken away. And that's why the biblical writers emphasize it so much. It's to to give encouragement and confidence that if you are a child of God, you need not live in anxiety and worry about whether you will actually get the inheritance of things promised. The whole promise of this doctrine of adoption is to remove the anxiety. It is to remove the worry and say it is yours. It is yours. Peter describes it this way in 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Reserved in heaven For you who are protected by the power of God through faith. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You could put it this way. Indeed we have experienced an amazing transformation already if we are in Christ. From our former life to what we are now. But we can say this. What we will experience when we are glorified. When we are with Christ. Far exceeds the difference. Between our former way of life and what we live right now. The inheritance, the riches, the glory that is promised us in that life to come. This inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled far exceeds our expectation. Far exceeds. That's why John Owen said adoption is our fountain privilege. Out of adoption springs forth all of these riches which are ours to have in Jesus Christ. Thomas Watson said this, God's decree is the very pillar and basis on which the saint's perseverance depends. That decree ties the knot of adoption so fast that neither sin, death, nor hell can break it. Asunder. Similarly, Martin Lloyd Jones said this If God has adopted you into his family, if you are a child of God, your destiny is secure, it is certain, it is a guarantee. If God has taken me into the family, I am not only a child, I am an heir. And nothing and no one can ever rob me of that inheritance. And some of you need to hear it tonight. Because some of you live in constant anxiety and worry. That somehow you haven't performed just quite well enough to preserve the inheritance. And God is moment by moment, day by day, slowly taking it back. That is far from the teaching of Scripture. He is so great and so glorious. He is such a keeper of His Word. He is so faithful that when He says, You are my Son, He means it. And the inheritance that He provides is guaranteed. It is imperishable. It is unfading. Number six, very quickly, adoption establishes special family relationships. I won't get into that here, but you know the implication of this. Number one, we we are now sons of the Father, so we have a family relationship now with God. And so we can approach Him with confidence. Come to him, we can, and in times of need to receive whatever it is that we really need in that moment. He is the father, and as a father, he longs to give good gifts to you. Do you really believe that? That's what this relationship establishes. If you are in Christ, you have to understand that, Anytime you come to the Father and and, and you have a need, you have to understand His relationship to you is not one of resentment. He's not bitter over something you did yesterday or ten years ago. His, His attitude, His posture towards you is one of a Father who longs to give His children good gifts and is preparing the best in the life to come. We are now spiritual brothers with Christ. This is amazing. I am amazed, especially at, at Hebrews two verse 10 to 11, where it speaks of, of Christ's relationship to us. E- even before that, we could look at Romans 8 verse 29, that the whole purpose of, of salvation is to conform us to, to the image of His Son so that we would be one among many as he being the firstborn, Romans 8:29. But look at Hebrews 2:10 to 11. For it was fitting for him, the Father, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation, that is Jesus Christ, through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he, that is Jesus Christ, is not ashamed. To call them brethren. Can you imagine that? As sons of God. If you are a son of God. He's not ashamed. To say. He's my brother. And of course that relates or. Implies another kind of relationship. We are now spiritual brothers with each other. That means we call each other brothers. Brothers doesn't matter what socioeconomic, ethnic background you come from. If you're in Christ, you are my brother. And you are closer to me than any other family member who is outside of Christ. Do you realize that? Look at each other and realize this. As you look upon other believers in this room, they are closer to you and must mean more to you even than any other family member that you have that is outside of Christ. The relationship is much more profound. Doesn't matter the color of your skin. Doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank. Doesn't matter what kind of work you have, how old you are. If you're in Christ, you're a brother. And that has all kinds of implications for how I should treat you and how you must treat each other. We can go there a different time. Let me turn to the final aspect here. Adoption is an astonishing display of divine love. Adoption is. An astonishing display of divine love. We were sons of disobedience. We were children of wrath. Our father was the devil. God bought us. He made us his sons. Pause and consider that implication. Pause and consider that in Christ you are now called a son. Of God. He has put His name upon you now and forever. And you can call Him Abba, Father. John Murray says this surely is the apex of grace and privilege. It staggers imagination because of its amazing condescension and love. J.A. Packer puts it this way, quote, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Higher even than justification. Adoption is higher because of the rich relationship, the richer relationship with God that it involves. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and, and viewing God as Father." In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God, the father, is a greater. End quote. Think of that. Some of us are happy just to stop at justification. That's good enough, we say. (laughs) I'm a sinner, but I'm declared righteous. Amen. Hallelujah. I can die. Well, there's more to the gospel than that. There's more to salvation than that. This is the glorious nature of salvation and that God offers even more. And he doesn't just say, you know what? I'm going to pronounce you righteous. He says, I'm going to take you as my son. And all the glory that I can give, I'm going to give to you. All the riches of this inheritance, you're mine. And there's a new relationship now. Not just like the relationship between an innocent man and a judge, but between a son and a father. There's so much more. James Buchanan, not the president, but the theologian said this. According to the scriptures... Pardon, acceptance, and adoption are distinct privileges. The one rising above the other in the order in which they have been stated. While the first two properly belong to justification, the third is radically distinct from them as being founded on a nearer, more tender, and more endearing relation. That between a father and his son. There is a vast difference between the position of a servant and of a friend. And also between that of a servant and a son. This is what the gospel does. This is the glory of salvation, the climax, the pinnacle, as Packer calls it. And so in response... I found this statement by John Owen to be very challenging and requires contemplation. He said this, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness that you can do to Him, is not to believe that He loves you. Again, some of you need this. Some of you have been plagued by various ideas that suggest that you somehow have something to do to make God love you. There's, there's just something that you've got to accomplish, achieve, and you keep falling short day after day. And coming to the conclusion as you lay your head on the pillow that he doesn't love you. As Owen says, that's the greatest thing that you can do to him is to think he doesn't love you. There's so many practical implications from this. We'll close with that. Let's look to our Heavenly Father and give him thanks for this wonderful gospel reality. Heavenly Father, That we can even call you that is grace. Used to be that our father was the devil. We were sons of disobedience and children of wrath. And yet you did something so marvelous, amazing. Through Christ in order to adopt us as your children, as sons, to give us this new status, to give us this new identity, to imprint your name upon us that says we are now yours forever, and to prepare for us an inheritance that is beyond our imagination. What? a demonstration of undeserved love. How amazing. We stand in awe and we ask that in the days and weeks ahead, you would teach us the implications of this new status in new and profounder ways than we've ever understood before. That your spirit would do His ministry of reminding us during those times when the when the accuser wants to spread those doubts that the Spirit would keep pointing us back to the cross, to what Christ did, back to the promises, back to the indicatives of what You have done for us, and remind us that we are still Your children and ever will be. Only you could do that, and we give you all the glory in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.